0: This podcast was not produced in the studios of 3CR Community Radio, but rather under a kitchen table using a doona as soundproofing. But that doesn't mean the station no longer needs your financial support to stay on air. Our community is not just studios and microphones. It's people. People like yourself who during COVID-19 value independent community information and creativity more than ever. So. We're counting on you to keep us on air. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate and please support our June station appeal. Stay safe and thank you for your support.
1: I got something I want to talk about to you. Just a little
0: Welcome to Communication Mixdown, I'm Reema Rattan. The coronavirus pandemic has highlighted all kinds of good and ill in our society, and one that has been bothering me has been footage of violence on social media. Starting with fights over toilet paper, we're now seeing short videos of racial abuse. What's remarkable about these videos, apart from their content, is the fact that they show physical or verbal violence, but rarely intervention by the people around. In fact, some videos show a number of people making the footage, but not speaking up. To try to understand why this was, and also whether having easy access to the online world was somehow facilitating social passivity, I contacted a philosopher. Patrick Stokes is an associate professor of philosophy at Deakin University and spoke to me over Zoom about 10 days ago about what may be happening. I started by asking Patrick about the footage we saw in the first weeks of the pandemic of people fighting over toilet
2: paper. Fighting over toilet paper is really interesting. Um, I mean, it's kind of neatly symbolic of a whole bunch of things to do with COVID-19 and and the issues around it, that it was toilet paper specifically that people started fighting over. Because it's something that, like a pandemic itself, reminds us in a really fundamental way of our animal nature. You know, it's not fighting over, um, you know, consumer goods. It's not fighting over things that have got like a high level of, um, you know, branding or cultural cachet it's fighting over things that you need just insofar as you're an animal basically uh and that in a way is kind of symbolic of of COVID-19 that it doesn't particularly care about um our economy or our culture or our social wants or needs it's just something that affects us insofar as we're animals it's you know, so we're, we're having to deal with phrases like herd immunity and so forth and having to deal with the fact that we are in fact just animals and so it was kind of neat in a way that toilet paper became kind of the big signifier of of the whole thing because it, again it's it's such an, a, a basic animal need and it calls us back to that kind of very basic organic vulnerability
0: one of the shocking things for me was and what this show is about is people making videos of this but not intervening let's get to Mm. the heart of that what does that say
2: there's a, a few different things you can say i mean on the one hand people um looking at things and not actually intervening is a very common and well understood and well studied phenomenon actually um going right i mean the classic case that everyone talks about of course is the kitty genovese case and we'll talk about that i'm sure but It's also, I think, complicated by the fact that we now live in an age where not only do we all walk around with the capacity to film everything, uh, but there's also almost an expectation, if you like, that we will film things when anything unusual happens, somebody's going to film it. And importantly, too, the filming itself actually becomes part of the event itself and it's understood by the people involved as being part of the event. So when we talk about this stuff, I think it's important that we recognize that. Uh, simply filming say a confrontation is not exactly the same thing as being a passive bystander. It's also not exactly the same thing as actively intervening either, but it seems to be somewhere between those two things. The very fact that we're seeing these videos, the very fact that they all find their way online, is that a lot of them find their way online, is really interesting in itself because it seems like the filming and the putting it online and then the shaming or the calling out of the person is kind of understood as part of the event as part of the conflict look at the person who did this find them make them have consequences so it's not as if it's a complete um completely passive non-involvement but at the same time uh it may not be enough to simply stand there and record you may actually have to intervene and it may be that even the expectation that someone's going to film the thing and maybe put it online afterwards gives people a license not to intervene that they maybe didn't have before.
0: Now, let's let's step back to the Kitty Genovese case mm. that you brought up. Um, yeah. Would you like to explain to the listeners a little about sure. it?
2: Yeah, so it's one of those cases that's actually um, kind of like Stockholm Syndrome, actually. It's a case where uh, a major psychological uh, syndrome or event or, or um, you know, what's meant to be a more or less universal human formation uh, is actually taken from a series of events that don't necessarily support um, the case that it's meant to support. So in the case of Stockholm syndrome, um, that was kind of made up by the authorities who were annoyed that people didn't side with the authorities, but side because they were worried that they were going to get killed. Um, In the case of um, the Kitty Chenevasi case, so it's a very sad case. It was a 28 year old, I think, um, woman who was murdered in Queens in New York in 1964. Um, she was attacked on her way home from the bar that she worked in. She was stabbed um, and, um, and, and died as a result of her, her stabbing. And it's a case where um, nothing much happened for a couple of weeks after the initial attack. And then Abe Rosenthal, who was the editor of the New York Times, happened to be having lunch with um, the chief of police in New York who said, oh, you should hear about this case. There were 38 witnesses who all, all saw or heard the attack and none of them did anything. And so Rosenthal thought, wow, that's a really interesting story. It's a, an indictment on um, the sort of society that we live in, that crime is considered so common, um, or so unremarkable that nobody intervened. 38 people, the, the idea seemed to be, could have intervened to save Kitty Genovese, and none of them did anything. And so this started a huge uh, sort of uh, analysis of the case in terms of psychology. And, of course, I'm not a psychologist. I should say I'm a philosopher. Uh, but in terms of what's sometimes called the bystander effect, the idea that people don't intervene if there are other people they think are watching the same event. And so what's going on there? Now, the big problem with the Kitty Genovese case is that the details were all wrong. Hmm. And it was known even at the time or shortly after that the details were wrong. Um, but nobody wanted to take Abras and Rosenthal on. He was not a man who was particularly given to, um, to self-correction and or to being corrected by others. And so the... Um, The basic details of it were kind of wrong. Firstly, the attack happened in two parts. So the attacker actually attacked Kitty Genovese, stabbed her, somebody then yelled at him, hey, leave that girl alone, whereupon he got in his car and drove off. He then came back, I think it was 10 minutes later, and continued to attack her. Uh, The second half of the attack occurred out of sight. Um, And in fact, of those 38 or so supposed witnesses, some of them were actually just all people in the same household, uh, some of them did call the police. some of them so they did sort of intervene none of them actually saw the whole thing none of them really understood or only one or two of them understood that they were witnessing a a serious sort of attack a couple of them appeared to have seen it and assumed that it was some sort of domestic incident so you've then got a whole series of problems around um people not engaging in domestic uh, violence which of course they should um so it was a much more complicated picture than it appeared to be But it got traction because it spoke to uh, particularly a series of anxieties about living in big cities and people living these very atomized lives where they don't necessarily know their neighbors uh, and where people just the idea is have become somehow cold hearted or indifferent to the suffering of others. Uh, And so there's a worry there or an anxiety there that the case latched onto, even if the actual details of it turned out to be wrong. And so it got studied by psychologists who started to look into the idea of the bystander effect and why do people not intervene. And there's a series of different um, theories around that. Of course, it turns out people will intervene, but it depends on the circumstances. Yeah. They're more likely to intervene in very unambiguous circumstances. So if it's very clear what's going on. They're more likely to intervene. If it's hard to interpret what they're seeing. they're less likely. Um, there is a theory that they are less. we're less likely to intervene if there's more people around us and we assume that someone else is going to do it. Again, I don't know how true that is. Uh, And there's also a question about um, what we assume other people think of what's going on. So there's a question about whether we tacitly assume that other people think, well, this is not a big problem. And if they think it's not a big problem, then I probably shouldn't think it's a big problem. And, of course, we can be mistaken about that. Yes. Um, Yeah, sometimes said this is one of the reasons why um, totalitarian societies last as long as they do, is people wrongly believe that everyone else around them supports the regime when, in fact, they don't. So there's there's these sort of social epistemological dynamics all come into play in these cases
0: i guess what i struggle with is even if you don't know what's going on if you've got people fighting if you can if you're witnessing people fighting the first social good is stopping the fight because that's not going to resolve anything
2: Hmm. yeah you would think that in the case of, of actual clear physical violence going on in front of you you'd want to stop that um of course people also don't want to get hurt themselves and that's not entirely unreasonable um and we are to a certain extent kind of almost conditioned not to get involved in those cases and to assume there's some authority we need to appeal to or someone who's going to step in and fix it and it's not necessarily the case on the ground um so i mean and the other thing too of course is how often have you seen this happen Hmm. right so there's a point to that when really unusual things happen in front of us we often don't really know how to react again i'm kind of stepping into psychology here so i need to be careful because it's not my area but um psychologists do talk about what's called normalcy bias right which is that um when you find yourself in a situation which you've never been in before a really extreme situation you just don't know how to act Hmm. or even don't know how to recognize the situation as being what it is because we just assume that things are normal because almost all the time things are normal and so we're very bad at recognizing when things have stopped being normal um that's sometimes um uh raised in the context of things like footage of ships sinking and people just sitting around on the um on the deck smoking on chatting or whatever and you know the, the deck is clearly tilting at like a 45 degree angle the ship is clearly sinking but because people have never been on a sinking ship before they're not thinking this is wrong something really really bad is going to happen wow. uh and so they just they just default to treating everything as normal uh i'm I remember reading once i don't know how true this is but i remember reading that actually the biggest predictor as to whether you will survive an emergency situation like a really extreme emergency is whether you've survived one before and in part that's because you you recognize what's going on and you can react accordingly so if you see people fighting in front of you it's not something that most of us see Mm. all the time and again it very much depends on your background but um it's something that's so kind of unusual that you to a certain extent many of us and I suspect is probably what I, it's never even happened to me but um it's the sort of thing where you'd probably be sort of stunned into almost immobility just because you don't have a playbook for that
0: yeah and and there is I mean even in first aid the first thing is to make sure you're safe right you're not going to help mm. a fight by getting stabbed but
2: that I... also can can take a certain amount of like you know fighting against your own instincts um I, I remember reading a really remarkable um thing recently from somebody who'd been through the Ebola outbreak had been a medic during the Ebola outbreak um, and has said uh thing everyone needs to remember is there are no emergencies and pandemics and so what i mean by that is if there's a medical emergency going on in that ward you get your ppe on you get your gear on you keep yourself safe you don't rush in and try and resus the patient you make sure that you're safe to go in before you go in if that means the patient dies the patient dies but if you go in and you catch something and you die then there's a whole bunch of other people who are also going to die because you're no longer there to help them But everyone's instinct is, oh, I need to go in, I need to fix this. So you can actually find yourself fighting your own instincts in those cases too.
0: Everything has changed. In a way, nothing looks like it's changed, but actually everything has changed.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a weird sort of situation and we don't have a playbook for this. I think nobody's, um, I mean, I keep using that phrase and it's a terrible phrase in some ways, but... it it feels right just in the sense that none of us really now living have been through this in living memory none of us certainly not in australia anyway i mean i can't talk globally um, because of course there are people around the world who have been through pandemics and through similar things as well um my grandmother passed away just recently she was born in the dying months of the global spanish flu pandemic she was born in in 1920 Um, Most of the pandemic had played out by then. It was really 1918 to 19, but it was still officially declared until December 1920. And she died in the opening months of COVID. Hmm. So, uh, but again, she obviously didn't remember the Spanish flu. And there was no one around from that period who had any kind of muscle memory of of dealing with that kind of situation. And so it's very easy to get into the assumption that life will simply go on the way it always has done uh, until it doesn't and we almost have this assumption that things have to go on the way they've been going on because our projects are so deeply invested in them because Mm. it's like of course the economy has to continue operating the way it does because how else is it going to do it of course i have to keep going to work of course i can go to restaurants or pubs because that's just what i do right the idea that something could actually come in there could be an externality that comes in and shuts all of that down is so unfamiliar to all of us, I think, from sort of born after 1945, yeah. uh, that it's, um, it, it's just hard to process that the world works like that. But, of course, it always has. We've just been spared a lot of it.
0: So fighting is one thing. And, and I can see, you know, why um, people wouldn't intervene. But racist attacks are not are not as, uh, is that the right word? It's not that they're not unusual, but I guess, yeah, I, people don't commonly see them. Hmm. But verbal abuse is something people commonly see. Mm. What about yeah, that, intervening or not intervening in someone being racially vilified?
2: It depends what you mean by intervening. We see those videos and what we want is for somebody to turn around and start just berating the attacker, right? Because, of course, we're infuriated by them and we want somebody to take the person to task. And increasingly, I think the videos you see on this do that. Increasingly, you do actually see people starting to take the, the attacker to task. But... It's often very important to look at what's going on to the victim in those videos and is the victim simply sitting there uh on their own just being assaulted in this way or is somebody actually talking to the victim because in many respects it's probably more important to actually talk to the victim and and you know look after them yeah so it depends it depends to a huge amount what we actually mean by intervening and you know as i say we're horrified by these videos when we see them we're often horrified by them in a very self-serving sort of way which is you know people do things like oh my god that's not who we are and it's like actually yeah. that's exact, that's exactly who we are
1: yeah
2: um but you know the, the first concern here really should be for the person who's actually on the receiving end of it and so in some respects um the temptation to stand up to the person and say you are racist sir um you know i understand that temptation yeah but probably the more important thing to do is to actually just like you know get in between them and the victim and and focus your attention on the victim and make sure they're okay without being patronizing of course so yeah i mean it's it's a complicated dynamic too and again those risk factors come into it too if somebody's so prepared to break a series of tacit social norms that we have they're going to racially vilify someone to their face what else are they prepared to do are they prepared to use violence on you if you um try and intervene uh what's going to happen there And the videos we see quite often are the videos where if people do actually remonstrate with the attacker, the attacker will sort of go, ah, ah, is it typical, ah, da 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 da," whatever. And it just turns into, the whole thing turns into mush. But again, you don't really know in that situation, what's actually going to happen. Hi, my name's Travis from Larrakia Country. And I'm here to talk about the Reading Writing Hotline. It's a service that helps adults who can't read and write as well as they'd like to. The number is one 300 6 Give them a call if you know somebody who needs help with reading and writing. It's never too late to learn and it's easier than you think. 1-300-655-06. 1-300-655-06, the Reading Writing Hotline.
0: A 3CR supporter. You're with Communication Mixdown and this week I'm talking to philosopher Patrick Stokes about witnessing conflict and intervening in the time of pandemic. I guess my motivation for this show was I just found it sort of uh, quite difficult to watch videos of these things of, 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 you know, fights over toilet paper or people being um, abused and just kind of seeing people with um, phones, just Mm -hmm. just taking the phone and not where do we place that in the spectrum of actually. Um, comforting the victim or confronting the, um, the abuser or attacker. W- mm. Where does that lie in terms of uh, the value, I guess, of that intervention? Yeah.
2: This is where it gets really, really complicated. Because, I mean, the most, y- we could go really pessimistic and say that what's going on here is a real-world um, horrible thing that's occurring is being turned into mere spectacle. Mm. So what we're doing is we're taking an event and we're reducing it to the level of just more content for the big, you know, hungry content machine. Um, And and there is something to that, right? It's kind of like, oh, hey, here's just another cool thing I saw for you to look at on your phone for 30 seconds. Um, But on the other hand, we could also look at that and say that recording the event matters in a way, like actually saying this happened and it matters. Is for one thing it's part of taking the event out of its kind of singularity if you like and saying this is what goes on this is a real thing this is part of the fabric of society and it's something that we have to sort of be aware of and address because this is the kind of the visible violent aspect of a much much deeper problem that's much more kind of pervasive so there is some value to recording it there may also legally be some value to recording it yeah uh, and there's also the thing too that then it gets put online and you could say that in fact, um, there's a deterrent value in that, that if people understand that if you do this stuff, you're gonna get filmed and it's gonna get put online. Yeah. That in theory may start to deter some of those attacks. The problem with that is that increasingly there's evidence that even anonymity online doesn't make much of a difference in terms of abusiveness. Um, you know, we, we like to think that part of the reason why the online space is so full of trolls and abusers and so on is because they're anonymous and so they can get away with it. Um, but there's some evidence now to suggest that in fact, even when they do have to use their real names, they're still abusive, they still troll, they don't care. So it's, you know, whether it works as a deterrent or not as a shame mechanism or not, I don't know. But um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's important as, as I say, to say that it, filming something on your phone is not the same as you know jumping in and trying to help someone. At the same time, it's not exactly the same thing as simply ignoring it either. It is actually taking part in the event in some way and potentially in a way that could actually be helpful. Um, if everyone starts filming it on their phone and no one actually intervenes, then we could say, well, that's not great, is it, right? We probably don't yeah. need 30 different video footage of it. What we need is for somebody to actually get it in and stop the damn thing. So <laughs> there's there's a point there about collective agency and collective action. And
0: well, it's uh, interesting again... you say that because in the bystander effect, that one of the ideas is that if, the more people they are, the less likely you are to act. Mm. Well, that's part of a theory, but...
2: Well, yeah, I mean, if there's three or four of us, it's much easier to see yourself as a participant. If there's 30 of us, it's much easier to see yourself as a spectator.
0: Right. So I guess the motivation for this show was a video where there were a whole bunch of people I saw in the background, you know, three people videoing, yeah. nobody nobody um, intervening. Mm. I don't know. It does leave a bad taste in your mouth, doesn't it?
2: It does, but I think we also have to remember... the relationship we have to our technology now um Mm. it's it's on the one hand we can look at that and say that as i say it's leveling everything down it's turning the real world into mere content for the virtual world but the other way to look at it is to say that your phone in a way is an extension of your body now it's an extension of your consciousness right Mm. um a lot of philosophers would say exactly that in fact that it's a part of your extended mind um and the internet is no longer this separate ontological realm that we can visit um, and so the online offline distinction is starting to collapse that was true kind of in the 90s yeah or even then it was not entirely true but it was easier to believe that it was true that cyberspace was this separate realm that you could go to because yeah. you had to sit in front of a networked computer terminal right yeah um, you had to sit in front of a clunky desktop and you had to wait for the machine to go dang, 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 and stuff and then you'd get online and you do your stuff and then you get off and go off to the real world or meet space as it was sometimes rather delightfully called um but now of course the internet is just part something you carry around with you it's embedded in and threaded through your daily interactions with the world um the philosopher luciano floridi has said that the um the online versus offline distinction has now collapsed into what he calls on life mm. so the idea being that the internet is now just part of our embodied existence as we move through the world not a separate place that we go to and then leave uh and that means too that the very act of filming and remediating something that's going on in front of you um is in some ways uh, it's part of your physical response it is part of what you're actually doing in that moment and it does have uh it it is part of the way in which you are responding is putting that out there and saying this is occurring this thing is occurring um but again whether it's the right response
0: yes um, and the spectatorship is a little um hmm. Well, not blurry. The spectatorship is a little disturbing. I guess life as so we become we participate in life as spectators rather than mm. actors.
2: Yeah, I mean I don't think there's anything new in that though. Like I mean I don't know that I, I don't know that it was the case that a hundred years ago or two hundred years ago, if something like this was going on or some sort of disturbance was going on in a public space, that everyone would immediately jump up and say, mm. "Hey, you can't do that." Well, yeah, Somebody the might. Kitty
0: Genovese shows us that. Yeah
2: well yeah i mean although again it's it's unclear exactly what kitty genovese shows And, and the other thing too of course is we can abstract this stuff from the very very concrete situations in which it's occurring yeah um so the kitty genovese case um is often kind of talked about in isolation from the way in which crime reporting worked in the u.s attitudes to crime in the u.s and the deeply racialized way in which that occurred um you know and so there's all sorts of of concrete sort of socio little social factors involved that maybe get sort of rinsed out of the, of some of the ways in which we talk about this stuff.
0: Okay, so if if we take this idea that you mentioned of um, online life being an extension of of our lives rather than an uh, attachment, um, and we combine that with something you said previously about how people. You know, the anonymity of being online allows for um, people to behave like trolls when they wouldn't in real life. We're looking at a pretty scary sort of idea of society when we marry those things where people feel free to be completely uh, nasty or whatever online. And and that's actually, online is actually our own life Mm
2: -hmm. world. So one thing you could say is that um, in a way it's a good thing that people are saying things that in the past they would only say among a a peer group that would all sort of tolerate what they're saying or let it pass. In some ways, strangers are much more prepared to take you to task. They're much more prepared to call you out. And so in a way, it's kind of good that people are suddenly finding that when they ventilate the same attitudes they felt safe to ventilate before, suddenly they're getting pushback against doing that. Mm. Um, You know, and, and so... Maybe that's a good thing in some respects.
0: That was Associate Professor of Philosophy at Deakin University, Patrick Stokes, talking to me about how and why people do or do not intervene when they witness verbal or physical violence in social settings. It felt a little like a therapy session for the existential angst I've been getting from watching videos of fights over toilet paper and racist abuse since the start of the pandemic, to be honest. I hope it helped you understand what's going on in the larger context of such events as it did me. That's all for Communication Mixdown for this week. We'll be back next Monday at the same time. We're going to go out with a song picked by Patrick. This is Peep Temple with Constable.
1: Humble times, swimming in bills. You just have to do what you can. My wife's father was the family patriarch. A detective sergeant, that's how I started. He was always full of condescending encouragement and strong advice. So I brought in to keep the peace and I enjoyed the pace as I cut my teeth. And I tuned in to some very unsteady hours and unsteady head. It can be hard to keep it all together, friend. The skull gets so cluttered. Sometimes you forget your own name. With the odd little step, backwards stumble and bore, everything in life becomes haunted. And i got ghosts in my walls and in my pockets. But at least I am But not the snub, they were more than encouraging when I packed it up and transferred into state, to a station in a little town called Keith. I'm the king out here in a small, small pond, everything I want, i got. This is my time and this is my place in this big old tent- Money is tight when you're a constable. You need a strong stomach and a stronger will. Everything will make your bones ache and your death. Strange the things that happen here. Such a little place. I've seen things you wouldn't believe. And I've done things you couldn't imagine. Money is tight when you're a constable. There is no karma, and there is no God. And I most definitely don't believe in fate. I built my kingdom out here in this little old pond. It's not much, but it's all I got. And I'll protect every stone and every little buried bone with absolute and extreme prejudice.